Welcome to part seven of Raising an Entrepreneur, an eight-part series on what we can do to help our young people become happy, creative, passionate problem solvers. Let's roll this rock. Entrepreneurs are unique. They embrace the chance to overcome obstacles, solve problems, make the world a better place, and dictate their lives on their own terms while they take on risk. These are their stories. My name is Aaron Stewart, and I have been researching and living entrepreneurship for the past 30 years. And I now welcome you to The Little Black Couch, a journey in entrepreneurship. Hello, everyone. Welcome to part seven of our eight-part series on raising an entrepreneur. I'm looking forward to this show very much. It has been a long time coming. There's been a lot of research up to this point and a lot of discussion, and um, I'm surprised at how long each one of these shows has gone. There's just so much to say about it, and it's such an important topic to help our young people become uh, more than they are now and hopefully prepare them for the rigors of entrepreneurship. So today's show, I'm calling Perception Context. We're going to jump into that really quickly. The idea behind this show is that there's many things in life, and especially as entrepreneurs, when something happens, our, our initial reaction to that event can set us back a little bit if we're not careful. And so if we can learn to practice how to react to situations, then we are in a much better place to be effective and efficient entrepreneurs. And it's the, obviously the best time to get this sort of established in our youth is when they're young. And this kind of came to me in a very odd way. I was actually, and I started really thinking about this more deeply, I was actually at a golf school, believe it or not, and with a really amazing uh, coach and teacher. He coaches beyond golf. He's really a, a deep thinker, but I was there for the golf side of it, and he shares obviously golf, but he shares a lot more than that. And I've continued to see him ever since, and he's continued to be a, a mentor and a golf coach, frankly, of mine, but we were talking about trying to control our emotions out on the golf course and and golf courses I mean a, a golfing can be a quite a frustrating sport because you're trying to do something in nanoseconds. You're trying to control a ball in nanoseconds um, in a very beautiful environment. Um, but you're dealing with different aspects of nature and environment and you're trying to control your emotions and you're trying to be very precise because a club moving 110 you know, miles an hour and trying to hit uh, a little white ball in the middle of a club face is a difficult thing to do for us humans and all of that good stuff. So we're talking about it. It's very easy for us to get upset. And there's, there's, um, there's so much going on that there's a, a lot of potential for something to go wrong. And yet it's been proven time and time again, if you get upset and you get anxious and you go into fear or flight, you become a very poor golfer. Right, calm, calm people play a lot better golf than um, upset, conscious people. People that are using their conscious mind to try to control things because the golf swing is so fast and so precise that we just don't have the conscious um, capabilities to control the golf swing. And that causes a lot of frustration, especially if you hit a bad one. Not to mention the fact that some of the new golf balls are like five bucks each, you know? So if you hit one in the trees, it gets pretty expensive pretty quickly. So anyway, we were discussing about how we could react differently to different kinds of shots to hopefully stay calm and play our best golf. And um, the gentleman's name is Fred Shoemaker. He's written a couple books, and if you're interested in golf books, his are wonderful, Extraordinary Golf and Extraordinary Putting are both amazing books. 
but anyway, in these golf schools, he always has us read books and we come in and we talk about them. And so we were talking about this um, getting upset after a golf shot. And why do we get upset after a golf shot? And I'd never really thought about it that deeply. And why do we get upset really? And his point was, why do we get upset at any experience in our life? What's, what's, What's causing that upset? And, you know, we were throwing out, you know, fight or flight. We were, you know, we're, it's evolutionary. I mean, we were throwing out all kinds of ideas. And at least for golf, well, and, and we've gone on to think about it since then, but he said in the golf swing, for example, if you hit a bad shot and then you get upset, it's not that you're upset at the bad shot. You're upset because you know you're going to do it again. That's your perception. And that's what's upsetting is you haven't fixed enough to make it so you're not going to do that again and you know it. And so that's what's upsetting. And we sat there looking around at each other like, what in the world is he talking about? What do you mean? And then he went on to explain the following in that if I told you, so he was saying this to us, if I told you that the very next golf shot you hit would would be your last bad golf shot ever, and you would never hit a bad one ever, ever again, would you be upset? And the answer to that is absolutely not. We'd be thrilled to be finally done with the bad golf shots and be able to hit really good golf shots for the rest of our lives and never have to worry about again. We would almost be excited for the next bad golf shot because we knew that would be our last. We would be looking forward to the next bad golf shot. And so then he turned it back around. So what's changed? Well, our perspective has changed. Nothing about we were still going to hit another bad golf shot, but our perspective of, you know, it's never going to be another one after that changed it. So we were actually excited for the next bad golf shot instead of tormented by it. And the only thing that changed in that whole thing was what our perception was afterward. Now, is there any possible opportunity for us to never hit another bad golf shot? No, But we can then use tools like that to help us have a better perception of what's coming next. I mean, how long can it be before the next golf shot? Or, you know, are we going to find something in that bad golf shot that does help us become better going forward? And the answer to that is, yeah, there's a really good probability that we could come up with something, especially if we're not getting upset and we're allowing ourselves to be in a place where we can be creative and learn and all of that. And that's the same thing for our children, same thing for our youth, is when they get into bad situations where they get upset, then we need to help them start to understand that it's not the situation that's upsetting, it is their perception. And we do that by asking them questions just like this. So if they come home and they're upset over a bad grade, and they're very upset at their whatever it is, their performance, whatever, we instantly say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if that's the last bad test you ever, ever take? How would that make you feel? What if I told you that the next bad test you have is the last bad test you'll ever have? How would that make you feel? And let them think about it. They'd feel pretty great about it. And then show them like, look, all I've done is just asked you a different question and it's changed your perception. Be very upfront and open with them. And then say, look, all this upset does not help you do better on your next test. You're better off staying calm and focusing on the things that you didn't know for this test to prepare for the next one. And and the way we do that is becoming, it's changing our perception, becoming calm and getting to a place where we can learn and be creative and all of that, right? So we just start going through that, that exercise and we're helping them build then very healthy neural pathways 
to adjust when something doesn't go right. So they can then start asking themselves internal questions. Okay, what if that's the very, the very last time somebody says, you know, calls me a bad name? What, is that, what if that's the very last time I lose my shoe? And help them change that to a positive mindset as quickly as possible. That is such a valuable tool as an entrepreneur. As you come in and things start to go wrong, or let's say you have a bad day and cre- the creativity just isn't flowing, you've got writer's block, or you forgot to do something, and say to yourself, okay, but, but what if I learned enough today that I never do that again? Now, will you do it again? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. The point is we're changing our perception, and we're practicing changing our perception to put ourselves in a better frame of mind so we can operate as a more efficient and effective entrepreneur. Always being ready for the next thing and, it's, and then being prepared to react to it and change our perception so it doesn't always frustrate us and get us down. Right? We always see each thing as something that's positive and moving us forward. And hey, if, if, that, if that never happens again, then I've moved enough forward. Or because this happened this time, it just means that I was doing something and I took action. So that's actually a positive thing. Whatever it is, if we can change our perception, it changes everything. Um, and, and this is such a wonderful tool for so many things. My wife and I were talking about a particular situation with one of our children one night, and we were talking about, we were quite frustrated um, with our boy and with some of the stuff that he's doing, and, and then out of the conversation said, yeah, but look, what if this is what he needs to never have this problem again? Would that be worth it? Absolutely, right? We would absolutely. Or if somebody told us, hey, if you were to sacrifice the next year of your life living in a tent so your child never had to experience this hardship, would you do it? Well, if I went in and had to live in a tent for a year, no, I wouldn't do it at all. But if my perception was my child would benefit for it if I spent the next year in a tent, I would have a much different perspective of staying in a tent. And I am not a camper. But we can do those mental, um, we can take those mental steps to actively make sure that our minds are thinking with a new perspective. And it actually develops into a talent where now every situation that hits, we quickly, we get very good, we create a neural pathway, we, we practice it so much, we wrap it with myelin, and we become so good at changing our perception to a situation and flipping it on its head become, to become positive and helpful. Okay, so that's the art of changing perception. And that's something that we can, over and over again, talk to our children about and help them see a different way of thinking. And then tell them exactly why we're doing it because we don't want you to be upset because being upset makes you very, very um, uncreative. It, it makes you sad. It makes you miserable. It makes it so you don't sleep well. It makes it so you don't think well. It means it so you don't learn as well as you could. We want to avoid those situations. So let me show you how we do this. And definitely take the opportunity to do it yourself and do it out loud when you're in the car and somebody cuts you off. What if that was the last time anybody ever cut me off? That'd be awesome, right? If we do that and we take that time to practice, perception can be switched on its head in a second and change our ability to be in a better place. Cool. Okay, the next little, the next little um, strategy, if you will, for entrepreneurship is trying to wrap everything in its proper context. 
And this one becomes a little more difficult. It's sort of a play on perception because we are changing things. But where perception is how we're perceiving things, now we have to flip it on our heads and ask questions as to, you know, what if if somebody else is doing something and somebody else is having a bad day, if somebody else is doing something, can we change the, the, the narrative? Can we change the context of whatever that situation is uh, to help us deal with it better? Okay, and this is becomes a very important thing in um, entrepreneurship because sometimes things change. Uh, sometimes big contracts come to you and they'll cancel. Or sometimes you spent all night working on something and um, it, it, you sent it off to somebody and, and they told you they were going to love it and they didn't love it and they sent it back. Um, obviously, there's a way to take... This is a, a step further than perception this is a way to make sure that we keep connectivity um, and we stay positive about everybody outside. Um, so if you frame what people are doing back at us with a certain context, then we can take out the negativity of whatever comes back. So for example, let's say we created and we worked hard on a project and we took and, and they said, this is exactly what we want and we build it out and we create it and we send it off to them and say, here it is. And then they tell us after we've worked and they put out a deposit and they, they push it back and say, you know what, we're not interested anymore. And they don't give you a reason. Well, it would be very easy for us at that particular time to be very upset with the whole situation. Obviously, we have the opportunity to change our perception of that. But it's also important to go back and say, look, I don't know what's going on at their company, but obviously something changed and they're not willing to share with me what that is. But... Um, how I react to this could make a huge difference down the road in my future. And so I need to frame this properly and say and think to them, okay, something really bad must have happened to them. Something changed drastically. Somebody got fired. Somebody retired. Something happened that changed everything down there. And whatever that was, they believe that it's best for their business and their shareholders and everybody else to not go with me at this particular time. And I'm going to respect that. Because if something happened to me on along the similar lines and I couldn't go with them anymore and had to tell them no, I would feel bad about it, but it's business, right? And try to reframe that and change the context and send something back to them that says, hey, I'm so disappointed. I was really looking forward to working with you. I hope everything on your end works out. We do this kind of stuff all the time. We'd love to work with you in the future. Please think of us the next time. Um, this will be waiting for you. Um, yeah, let me know. Thanks for everything. And be very positive and change the context so you can be positive and authentic. Not sarcastic. None of that. But send that back to them and let them know, hey, you know what? I care about you guys. I, I want you guys to want what I've got for you. And if you don't want it, I don't want you to have it. And put the context like that so they can feel how genuine we are as entrepreneurs. That is a huge thing. We had an opportunity where I, I, I've mentioned this before in the past, but I went up to Union Pacific and, and I pitched them on this really cool thing that I developed. I was so excited about it. I was pumped out of my mind. And I had all these devices and things and I was going to, I was about 10 years before really smartphones or anything, and I had a Palm Pilot, and I had a GPS unit, and I had, and I had a software installed on the Palm Pilot so they could report, record their, their statements. I had everything, and I was just, I, I, was, I had a camera attachment. I had all this really cool stuff, 
And so I went through my presentation and I showed them and everything was great and whatever. And ta-da, you know, the presentation went flawlessly. I was so pumped. And I thought that they would just fall all over themselves. And they just, they sat there just staring at me like I'd, you know, grown a dozen heads. Like it was completely dumbfounding to them what I just approached to them. And I'd taken probably a too far of a technological jump for this particular group. Um, and so I went back to my office and they were kind of like, yeah, we'll get back to you. As I drove back down to my office, I thought to myself, my word, how could they not see, you know, how could they not see how awesome that was? How could they not understand the opportunity? How could they not see how much more effective and efficient they're going to be from this point forward? How can they not be falling all over themselves and praising my brilliance for pulling this together, you know? How is this possible? And so I drove back. Fortunately, it's about a a 40-minute to um, hour drive. And I got to think and think and think. And slowly, by the time I got to my office, I kind of calmed down. I thought, you know what? Maybe I overdid it. Maybe it wasn't exactly what they were looking for. Maybe it was what I thought was awesome for them, but it didn't really address their problems. So I shot out a quick email to the guy that I'd been in contact with and said, hey, thank you so much for letting me come up and present all my newest, latest, and greatest ideas. I really appreciate it. I know it was so on the cutting edge and it was so out there, but it was so exciting. If there's any part of that or if there's anything I can do for you guys going forward, please let me know. Well, a week later, I got a call back and they said, hey, you know what? Do you have any sort of way to help us go from analog to digital? Well, yeah, we had been doing that for a while. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And they said, do you have something that's a little more, you know, simple or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. And so right after that, we set them up on a brand new account and got them up and going. And they became a really good client. And this was back in 2000. They're still a really good client here in 2019, some 19 years later. And it was just because I had the time to reframe it and get back to the office and realize that maybe their situation wasn't what I thought it was and reframe it, give them a break and, and extend out sort of a, a hand like, hey, you know, anything I can do, I'm willing to help you with. And a week later, we had a really good contract. It wasn't what I thought we were going to get. But because I changed the context of the situation and really cared about them and making sure they got what they wanted, it worked out really great for us. So if we can help our kids instantly create different contexts around things that other people are doing, then it will help them immensely, especially keep connection with the outside world. And we need that connection in place because we need them to be problem solvers. And as soon as we start feeling isolated and pulling away from everybody out there and have this desire to be part of the community and see the community's issues and want to solve those problems, um, then we really get in the way of being an entrepreneur. So helping them see and these contexts keeps them more connected, keeps them more invested, keeps them with a positive view, always looking to look for the right, I guess you could call it optimism, in the relationship. And more often than not, it works out much better that way. So a change in perception really about us and what's around us and our immediate reaction and a change of context, which is really changing what's happening outside of us to hopefully better understand what's going on for them and then maybe adjusting our, maybe adjusting our tactics and techniques to fit their context a little bit better and make, and make those match up a little bit better. So cool. And the last part is mental gymnastics or communication. We'll call it communication as well. And there's a lot of funny um, 
there's a lot of funny research and stuff out there about communication. And I'm not somebody who studies a lot about communication. I'm one that's never really thought communication as far as um, speaking in words was very important. Just because once I got in focusing on how children learn to walk and how they were able to do these really amazing, wonderful things without having any idea what we were saying to them, you kind of get the idea that maybe the words we say aren't as important as some of the other um, techniques to communicate, right? And a lot of them has to do with the, the little people wanting to, to, to keep us happy and progress and do all of that. It's so cool. I mean, I was thinking this morning, how cool is it when th- there's so many things that prevent us from doing the things in our lives that are difficult, But when you think of a little child learning to walk, um, they don't have that history. They don't have this, they don't have the old tapes running that, hey, you could break a hip if you keep falling down. Um, You know, so-and-so fell down the stairs and, you know, never walked again. They don't have any of these sort of bad memories and bad situations that they can frame what they're working on. And so they go fearlessly into learning how to walk. And how many of us, once we start getting the memories and we start seeing situations go on, develop this fear, and then forget to kind of go at life fearlessly as we did when we were learning to walk and to talk and do all those cool things. Because we just didn't have any of that, that you know, the, the history holding us back, um, which is an interesting conversation that's snuck into this, to this topic. But anyway, isn't that, I think that's cool. I think that's cool that then uh, we don't have any memory. We tend to do a better job of being... Um, well, at least try new things. Obviously, memory is very helpful. Um, you know, once you stick your finger in a socket, right, you never want to do it again. And that memory is a very powerful and helpful memory uh, going forward. So, all right, back to communication really quickly. So there's been a lot of research. Um, there was somebody, a, a, very famous, a very famous researcher whose name was uh, Albert Mayrabian. Um, he was at UCLA. And that's May Rabian. He was at UCLA back in the 70s, the early 70s. And he studied communication. And he's the one that, that came out with this idea that, that most of the communication is nonverbal between humans. And um, his actual, I think that he said that 7 or 8% of it was, was verbal. And then something like 40%, 38 40%, somewhere in there, was more of the tone and the sounds that you make. And then the remaining 55, 60%, something like that, was literally body, um, um, was, uh, you know, our facial movements, our facial and sort of our, our body movements, um, our, our nonverbal emotions. Um, that is how we communicate. So we as human beings have the ability then to Uh, communicate from long distances. We have the ability to communicate um, in in a lot of different matters than just by words. And I think that we learned that in our children, um, there was some research done on, you know, that, you know, dogs obviously do a very good job at watching our facial expressions and listening to our tone um, and, and can do a lot of really understand a lot of commands because of that interaction and because of that behavior, that learned behavior. Well, one of the coolest ways then to help our young people get better at communicating, and communicating really is about, we're we're really focusing on the connection part again, making sure that we are connected and understand people 
Um, so when we're interacting with them, we, we really understand what they're talking about. And if we understand what they're talking about, then we'll really understand when they're explaining their problems and their difficulties. And we really have to understand the problem fully in order for us to really provide a solution that works. So part of this communication is this. Obviously, the words we use and we go to school and we study and we practice our English and we do all that. Um, we'll practice our writing and our emails and we'll do all that. And that's why email is more difficult to, I mean, it's easier to kind of misunderstand is because so much of what we do is nonverbal and, and really doesn't have any words associated with it. We need the sounds and we need the um, body movements that go along with it to understand the communication. So we're really trying to get by in email on really like 7 to 10% of how we as humans understand one another, right? Texting the same thing. And now we've brought in emojis and things like that to ha- kind of help add the emotional side of it. Um, and that's why uh, emojis are so important and have become such a big part of our um, communication tools is because they do uh, give us the ability to put a little emotion into it and help get our point across. Very powerful. Emojis are very powerful in communication, especially in text communication. Um, so how do we help our children then become better at uh, communicating? Well, one of, the, one of the most fun ways, and I know that there's probably some people that are going to get a little weirded out by this, but it's really fun to go out and go through what we call mental gymnastics. And that is essentially, it's a super fun exercise, and it can be very, very entertaining And it can get a little, sometimes it gets a little outlandish, but it's a lot of fun with the kids. And so what we'll do if we're like at Disneyland or if we're out to dinner or whatever, and sometimes my wife and I do this too, we will pick out a couple or a table or whatever who are so far away from us that we can't understand what they're saying. We can't hear it. There's no way to go. And then we try to come up with what they're they're talking about, what they're communicating about, if they're happy, if they're upset. If they're angry, if they're on a first date, second date, if they've been married for how many years. And we try to pick up on these nonverbal cues and practice it and talk about it. And some of the stuff, you know, we'll, we'll start pretending like we're one or the other and talking back and forth and answering. And that is hysterical, especially when you get uh, my daughter is so funny that some of the stuff she comes off with is so off the um, it's so off the cuff and so crazy funny that, yeah, we obviously will burst out laughing and have a great time. And she does impressions and things. It's really start. It's really wonderful. But what she's learning through all of this is, one, we're having a wonderful time together. And she doesn't realize what's going on is that she is becoming an expert at understanding nonverbal cues. That she's getting very good at being somebody. Now, she doesn't feel very comfortable talking to people. She's still quite, she's not shy with us. But when she gets into new situations and we hang around a lot of young people and they change a lot and she has a kind of a hard time connecting with them. But there's no doubt in my mind she understands what's going on with them. As she watches them talk to one another and whatever, she'll talk about, uh, you know, the couples that are dating, the couples that are getting along, the couples that she has kind of the people that she has kind of a hard time with. All of that will come out. And because she's gotten so very good at reading these nonverbal cues. And so that's something that we can do all together as a family to practice that. And it's good practice for us as well, because so little of how we communicate is in the words we say. And that is the communication portion of it, right? 10%, 7 to 10%, there's some back and forth. But 7 to 10%, 10% is probably easier to remember, is the words we say. Say 30%, 
or so, 33%, somewhere else. So let's just say 30% are the sounds we make and the noises we make and how we say them. Um, our tone, our, our, um, all of that matters, right? Our accent, all of that matters. And then finally, that, that last 55 to 60% is the nonverbal cues, the body language, the facial expressions, all of that makes a difference in communicating. And to practice that, then we go and do these mental gymnastics, these little acting things together. And when you're out together with the young people, they love to do it. You just, they'll be a little weird when you start, but if you get into it and do that with them, you can have so much fun with it. It's probably one of the most fun things. It, it, when we're out together, it's the thing that makes us laugh the hardest. There's no question about it. Um, we don't have to think about memories or this, that, and the other. We're making new memories all the time, and we're actually involved in learning a very important aspect of being an entrepreneur. is understanding what's being communicated to us so we can fully understand the problem on all three levels, fully understand the problem. So when we set our mind to going and solving that problem, we have a really good understanding of the problem all the way around because we have become expert in all three levels of communication. So thank you very much for joining me again today on this part seven of Raising an Entrepreneur, how we can create happy, passionate, problem-solving children and help them to get up and get going. So until next show, our eighth and final show in this series, do good and be well. Thanks. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. If there's anything you heard today that you enjoyed, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted when the next episode is available. Until then, here's to all the entrepreneurs out there. Let's go get it done.